Hey everyone and welcome to Icons and Outlaws, your all-access backstage pass to the legends of the music world. I am your host, Jonathan Sayer. I am Jeff. I'm Logan. And this is episode five, Michael Jackson. Remember to stay to the end of the episode to listen to our version of Michael Jackson's Dirty Diana that you can find on Spotify and our own curated Icons and Outlaws playlist. You can find everything about the show over at IconsAndOutlaws.com and make sure to subscribe and tell your friends. Hey, Jeff. Yes, sir. What is your first remembrance of Michael Jackson? I'm pretty sure it's going to be like most people my age when I was little and he did the moonwalk when he separated from the Jackson 5 okay that first moonwalk he did I wanted to be like him so I put on a glove you know did you have a glove oh yeah yeah yeah. that's That's an 80s thing man oh yeah I actually had uh, the black um was it bad jacket? Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you know the Red Thriller one? I didn't have that one. <laughs> I had the black one. What about you, Young Buck? Uh, I think the first time I ever like really knew anything about Michael Jackson was when uh, it was like VH1 Jumpstart. You know anything about that? No. That doesn't even Dude, sound familiar like, to me. It's like MTV's like morning wake-up videos and like videos of like music and stuff. And Thriller came on, and I was just like, oh, my God, this is so, so cool. What year were you born? 95. 95. That's interesting, you know, because you're, you're talking, he's already at that point. God, how many albums? Well, yes. I mean, he was well established yes. at that point. Oh, so yeah. it's interesting to see like it just what randomly came from on, his yeah. generation, yeah. you know? Well, he, the, the, as we go through this, we, this is a two-part episode just for everyone out there listening. Uh, it is Michael Jackson and it is a, the dude's life, of course, if you've ever paid attention to him, uh, whether good or bad, is uh, it's plentiful. I mean, he's probably the biggest icon. At one least. One of in a handful. Yes. For he, sure. He's so. definitely one as, as, in his um period of time that he was around for sure yeah so the future king of pop michael joseph jackson was born on august 29th 1958 in gary indiana gary indiana gary yeah so joe jackson michael's dad was a former boxer and crane operator at u.s steel during the 1950s in gary uh, according to a fantastic article written by rolling stone quoted in the book dave marsh has trapped michael jackson in the crossover dream it's the name of the, the book there there were actual um, quotas um, in place on how many black workers were allowed to move up the ladder into skilled trades in the city mills. That was around for a long time. Remember the time? Yeah, yeah, it was a very rough time back then. Hmm. So this idiocy meant black workers were paid less than white workers, even though doing the same jobs. Yeah. Right. Really not good. <laughs> so unfortunately, this also meant that they were subject to higher rates of fatal industry-related illnesses. Pop, uh, but Papa Joe over here hoped that his, you know music would actually lift his life. He was really in, like into music and stuff. So Michael's mother, Catherine Scruce, was from Alabama but lived in East Chicago, um, Indi- uh, Indiana, uh, when she met Joe. Okay, so when she first met Papa Joe, that's where they were at. Mama Catherine played clarinet and piano and had dreams of being a country and western performer. Isn't that weird? It's crazy, isn't wow. it? Yeah. yeah. She worked part time at Sears and was a Jehovah's Witness. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, Nothing wrong with Jehovah's Witness, but oh, <laughs> <laughs> she grew up listening to country and Western music. And even though she had a dream to be a musician, she was uh, stricken with a, uh, a bout of polio oh, that had left her with an unfortunate and permanent limp. That's something I didn't know about. I didn't know that either. Papa Joe and Mama Catherine were young when they married in 1949 and started on. Uh, you know, they wanted had an idea to have a big old family. They wanted a big family. You know, back then you could. Yeah. We didn't have a uh, I won't go there with the, the current. Yeah. Leadership we have <laughs> yeah, in this yeah. country now, but yeah. there's no way you could have a family like that now. No. Nope. So the first of the bunch <laughs> was Maureen, a.k.a. Rebby, in 1950. Then Sigmund. Oh, I didn't know that. A.k.a. Jackie. Oh, okay. So his, in his real name is Sigmund. They Sigmund. Him, no, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Um, then there's Toriano. Who would that be? Latoya. Tito. Oh, really? Yep. In Toriano. Toriano. Then there's Jermaine. <laughs> he, okay. he just got Jermaine. Yeah. In 1954, Latoya in 1956, Marlon in 1957, and then there came Michael in 1958, Randy in 1961, and then little baby Janet in 1966, making her 16 years younger than her oldest um, sister, Maureen, a.k.a. Rebby. Now, we we have to put it out there that Randy Jackson is not the Randy Jackson from American Idol. No, yeah, it's not. That's not the same Randy Jackson. No, dog. No, it's not him. Jackson's a common name, obviously. It's like Smith or Johnson. You know what I mean? So... So Marlon was actually a twin, um, but the other brother, Brandon, actually died shortly after birth. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So there technically would have been one more of them floating around out there. It wasn't Marlon was close to age in Mike, with Michael, right? <clears throat> yeah, Ma- remember, he right. was just a little bit older than, than right. Michael was. Yeah, he was born in uh, 57, where Michael was born in 1958. So Michael and his cluster of brothers and sisters constantly had music around them. Papa Joe was super into the new electric R&B sound tearing up Chicago, which wasn't far away. Not to mention the beginning stages of early rock and roll. So Papa Joe formed a band with his brothers called the Falcons, making some extra coin in the surrounding areas at, you know, at parties and small clubs. In his 1988 autobiography, Moonwalk, Michael wrote, uh, quote, they would do some of the great early rock and roll and blues songs by Chuck Berry, Little Richard, you name it. Going on to say, quote, all those styles were amazing and each had an influence on us, though we were too young to know it at the time. So he was playing like some of the greatest stuff ever to these kids, you know, and like out there rocking and rolling. Papa Joe. It's crazy. Papa was a Rolling Stone. Yeah. You know, the Falcons eventually broke up and Papa Joe put down his guitar and hid it in his bedroom closet. He wouldn't let anyone near it, let alone touch it, giving his uh, us insight into his control over the household. And I'm sure everyone out there has probably heard stories about Joe was kind of a rough dad, you know, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So regardless of Papa Joe's musical dismay, Mama Catherine taught her flock of kids how to harmonize while listening to her favorite country Western songs, which is cool. And I had no idea that that's how they learned to actually wow. sing together. We can do that, Logan, right now. Ready? Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to correct oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> so imagine that with like five kids yeah, exactly. you know, trying to teach them. Yeah. So Tito, just like Daddy, was drawn to music and one day thought it was a bright idea to snag Papa Joe's precious guitar from the closet and take it to practice with his brothers. Oh, that's not good. Well, guess what? He broke a string. Oh, no. Michael later said uh, Joe whipped Tito for the infraction and, quote, he let him have it. <laughs> Yikes. Get the switch. Yeah. After the whooping, Papa Joe told Tito to show him what he could do on the guitar. Well, Papa Joe was floored. Tito impressed the crap out of him. So how messed up is that? That, hey, don't touch my guitar. Hey, you touched my guitar and broke a string. I'm going to beat the crap out of you. And then, well, wait a minute. What can you play? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's kind of like getting caught smoking when you were a kid, when your mom was like, you're going to smoke the whole pack in front of me, so you'll never smoke again. But then you end up just keep smoking. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> like, I, I don't know. <laughs> so is it possible that at that very moment, Papa Joe's light bulb blew a breaker and saw his musical dreams come to fruition vicariously through his kids? Could be. You know, because he was done with music. Remember that? He mm-hmm. was like, man, I'm not doing this anymore. And I tried to find stuff like why the, the Falcons broke up. And I think that was just they were all a bunch of just buttholes and whatever. Like bands well, they're yeah. factory working hard men. I mean, I'm sure they right. didn't get a lot of time to really put into it. You know? Right. So first, he bought Tito his own guitar and taught him some Ray Charles music. Then he got Jermaine a bass. Soon he was working all his sons into an ensemble. So I'm going to say, yes, the breaker totally blew. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, Papa loved uh, the uh, the blues, but he appreciated that his kids liked the new R&B, Motown, and Soul sound that was coming out. Mm-hmm. And more than likely saw dollar signs every time they mentioned it. Okay. Joe wanted Jermaine to be the lead singer with Jackie and Tito, uh, with Jackie and, Tito and Michael and Marlon playing the tambourine and congas. So just backups, basically. Yeah, so basically the young ones were like, you guys get over here, the, he's singing this song right now. So, And if you go back and listen to the Jackson 5 stuff, they had a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of them sang. Oh, yeah. Like, they were all together singing, you know? Mm-hmm. Michael said that he uh, that his father told him that he had a fat nose, okay? Just a little foreshadowing in how his father used to, like, make fun of him and stuff like that. Gotcha. And abused him during rehearsals. Michael recalled that Joe often sat in a chair with a belt in his hand as his children rehearsed, ready to punish any mistakes. That sucks. Yeah. And and again, that's horrible, but it did turn them into oh, yeah. like possibly the biggest pop stars of all time. I mean, yeah. he's not the only one to do that. Right. There a lot of musicians back in the day did that. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, Eddie Van Halen was guilty of doing that a lot. Oh, wow. Where, you know, he would just pretty much stand there and if anybody screwed up, they'd make him do it over and he'd just berate him and stuff. But there's something to be said about that. It's kind of like that military influence where... You, you know, the army does the same thing. You know, you, right. you keep oh, yeah. doing it. They break you and then yeah. you become a machine. There's there's you always know? a way to get people to do something. That's and then yeah. that's not necessarily the best way, but there's always a way. So Joe acknowledged that he regularly whipped uh, Michael. OK, Catherine said that although whipping came to be considered uh, abuse, it was common back in the day as a form of discipline, mm-hmm. you know, for children when Michael was growing up. And it's true. I got my ass beat when I was a kid. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I mean, mine was definitely far beyond what normal i guess whoopings would be but oh my gosh <laughs> the ufo has landed moody's here is that moody yeah. is that moody there all right so you know my dad used to go to catholic school and he would tell 
my son all the time and my son can never believe it but like the nuns used to like hit my dad with rulers on this on his knuckles yeah like if he would act up in class they'd take a ruler and just start whapping his oh, yeah. knuckles like, yeah especially catholic school right and that was yeah. common yeah that like you said that, that that's was how they what handled they did back, back in the day that's absolutely what they did like yeah. you i remember getting well, whooped by my fourth grade teacher you know what i mean who had it uh the the paddle was that you? That was my stepdad. Yeah. What was it called again? The Board of Education. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I remember that story. Yeah, it was it yeah. was hung up next to the wall and it said Board of Education on it. It was a board that could fit your hand, that's but it was wider awesome. up here and it had holes drilled into it so that way you had uh, less drag as it was smacking up against your ass. Fun times. The Board of Education. <laughs> yeah, the Board of Education. That's awesome. So, um, Jackie, Tito, Jermaine, and Marlon have said that their father wasn't abusive and that the whippings, which were harder on Michael because he was younger, kept them disciplined and out of trouble. Michael said his childhood was lonely and isolated. So you've got Michael saying, you know, I was, you know, abused by my father. And then you've got the other one saying, uh, you know, it was just like regular whippings for stuff that we did wrong kind of thing. Right. You know, so it's, I don't know, it's weird. At uh, just four years old, Mama Catherine saw Michael singing along to a James Brown song. And uh, she saw in both his voice and moves, he was already better than his older brothers at four. Wow. Yeah. Which either means that his older brother sucked or he was just super, like, really talented at four years old. Right. Obviously, it's the, the latter here. So she told Joe, quote, I think we have another lead singer. Catherine would later say that, they, uh, that sometimes Michael's precocious abilities frightened her. She probably saw that, you know, his childhood might actually give way to stardom. But she also noticed that there was something undeniable about his young voice. So she was looking at him going, wow, he could be a star, but he's too young for this. Right. So do I hold him back? Because the rest of them are all, they're working now. You know what I mean? They're starting to work toward actually being a band together. So do I hold them back and don't let them do it? Or do I, you know, you know, help him and push him, push him to go forward? And obviously we know what happened. So. Yeah. so Michael was also a natural entertainer. He absolutely loved singing and dancing. And because he was so young, the choice was clear. Michael was young and Michael was bad. Get it? <laughs> ah. No? Get it? Mm -hmm. ding, ding, okay. He was fantastic. Ding, ding. Okay, right. So Joe Jackson was good at what he did. Quote, he knew exactly what I had to do to become professional, a professional, Michael later said. He taught me exactly how to hold a mic, make gestures to the crowd, and handle an audience. But by Joe's own admission, he was also unrelenting. Quote, when I found out that my kids were interested in becoming entertainers, I really went to work with them. He actually told uh, Time in 1984. And he says, quote, I rehearsed them about three years before I turned them loose. That's practically every day for at least two or three hours. They got a little upset about the whole thing in the beginning uh, because the other kids were out having a good time. Then I saw that after they became better, they enjoyed it more. And that's nuts. Did you ever watch the Jackson kid? 5 yeah. documentary? Oh, yeah. Remember how they would take, like, they would all come home from school, and then they'd move the couch out of the living room, and they'd all get their instruments, and they'd line up, and Joe would stand there, and then they'd have to get their spins on time oh, yeah. and all that. Like, it was just an everyday, like, a job. But that's how you, that, that's, I mean, we know about from being advanced before, obviously, maybe not to that magnitude, but we rehearse two, three, oh, four yeah. times, especially before you go on tour. It's like every day. Oh, yeah. You know, you're recording and, or not recording, but rehearsing with each other. I so. mean, we could play those songs blindfolded by the time we went on tour. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's was, what you have to do. Yeah. You know? So, of course, that isn't always how Michael remembered it. Quote, we performed for him and he'd critique us, he wrote in Moonwalk, his book. If you messed up, you got hit, sometimes with a belt, sometimes with a switch. I'd get beaten for things that happened mostly outside rehearsal. So stuff that he was doing. Outside. Do you know what a switch is? Uh, yeah, it's a very, very, very fine stick that yeah. hurts. It's they a branch. Say, Go get a switch <laughs> off the tree. Yeah, it's yeah. a branch. Yeah. 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 And you better not come back with a too skinny one. But the worst part is you had to walk outside knowing that you're going to get beat with this thing. Pick one, snap it off the tree, take the leaves off. And then slowly walk back into the house and hand the switch to your parent and why they beat like it was a whole grandparents. Yeah. You know, oh, it was a know, mind. It was, yeah, yeah, it was a mind screw, dude. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They were like, hey, it's like they just grabbed it and hit you with it. You had to go get it, pick it out, bring it back, then get beat with right. it. Right. It's like, oh, yeah, uh, today's your execution day. Um, can you pick out what you want <laughs> to die with? Go ahead. Go ahead. Which, whatever you want, buddy. You know, think about that. I mean, yeah, it sounds terrible. And do I agree with it? No, but. You definitely would never do that again, right? Yeah. Whatever caused you to have that happen in the first place, you learn your lesson. It, yeah, at least hopefully, at least uh, right. if it happens, <laughs> yeah, hopefully you learn. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's ugh, whatever. So he says, um, I'd get beaten for uh, for things that happen mostly outside rehearsal. Like I said, Dad would make me so mad and hurt that I'd try to get back at him and get beaten all the more. I'd take a shoe and throw it at him, or I'd just fight back, swinging my fists. That's why I got more than all my brothers combined. I'd fight back, and my father would kill me, just tear me up. Oof. 
Boy, Michael sounded like he was a little badass back in the day. Yeah, yeah. A little bit. A little bad boy. You better calm down. <laughs> so those moments and probably many more created a, a loss that Jackson never got over. Okay. He was essential to the family's music making, but there was no other bond between uh, his father and him. Okay. Obviously, they had all this business. huge riff. Yeah, that's all it was. Again, from his book, Moonwalk, quote, one of the few things I regret most is never being able to have a real closeness with him. He built a shell around himself over the years, and once he stopped talking about our family business, he found it hard to relate to us. We'd all be together, and he'd just leave the room. So that's, he's just, he didn't care about the kids. It sounds like he cared more about what the kids can do for them. Right. You know? Around 1964, Joe began entering the, uh, the Jackson Brothers in talent contests, many of which they handy, uh, you know, just one right off the rip. Michael started sharing lead vocals with Jermaine, <clears throat> excuse me, and the group's name was changed to the Jackson Five. Hmm. In 1965, the group won a talent show. Michael uh, performed the dance to Robert Parker's 1965 song, Barefootin', and sang The Temptations, My Girl. Yeah. From 1966 to 1968, the Jackson Five toured the Midwest. They frequently played at a string of black clubs known as the Chitlin Circuit as the opening act for artists such as Sam and Dave, the OJs, Gladys Knight, and Etta James. Wow. Yeah. That's a legendary lineup can, right can there. Can you imagine? Ugh. Wow. Oh, and uh, James Brown, by the way. Oh, oh, oh yeah. 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 Who, yeah. yeah. Who's that guy? Yeah. You guys know who that is? Uh, that's a really, really old dude who's really Coming cool. to America. Yeah. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> Do you? <laughs> baby, baby, baby. Yeah, he's so awesome. That interview? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The one where he's. <laughs> totally got coked out of his mind yeah. and he did it uh, and have you seen it uh, you got to look the, the video up online uh, maybe we'll post it up there yeah where he's having an interview and it was a tv interview mm. and they're like so what's the allegations about you you know beating your wife or your girlfriend or whatever like that? he's like it's all good baby going on toll papa's got a brand new bag yeah Papa, he starts quoting his own songs yeah. like all of them yeah oh my lord coming to america yeah ha! coming to, <laughs> we'll, we'll be in new york city no but what about the allegations <laughs> you can just see he's got his glasses yeah. on and his black uh, his brown gloves it's i mean it's horrible because the allegations but it's we'll, hilarious we'll definitely be doing a show on james brown oh yeah he is a huge yeah. icon and a lot. and an old yeah, yeah, so sure. <laughs> yeah so um no one was as important to michael jackson as james brown was growing up okay that was like his icon quote i knew every step every grunt every spin and turn he recalled he would give a performance that would exhaust you, just wear you out emotionally. His whole physical presence, the fire coming out of his pores, would be phenomenal. You'd feel every beat of sweat on his face, and you'd know what he was going through. You couldn't teach a person what I've learned just standing and watching. And if you think about it, that's how you, if you watch somebody, and you have an inkling to be a performer, entertainer, whatever it is, and you watch somebody that some, just blows you away, that is the best you've ever seen, and you take, not copy, but take away things. Take elements of it. It's just yeah. going to make you that bigger and that better. Right. You know what I mean? And you should. You should be doing that. Every time we ever go to shows and stuff, I always paid attention to you know the singers on stage and how they acted, and I'd watch videos and stuff like that, you know? So, I mean, that's kind of what you do. Yeah. And that's what Michael did with one of the greatest ever, <laughs> James Brown. Yeah. So the Chitlin Circuit, by the way, if you guys were wondering, was a collection of performance venues throughout the eastern, southern, upper, midwest areas of the U.S., that provided commercial and cultural acceptance for African-American musicians, comedians, and other entertainers during the era, era, era of racial segregation in the United States through the 60s. I was going to say we're still in that time period where... So they were basically clubs that were specifically you know, either black-owned or only yeah. black you know, um, players and entertainers and stuff there. That's all it was because they weren't, quote-unquote, allowed to play anywhere else, which is just crazy if you think about it. You know what I mean? Speaking of that, just a quick little sideline. I watched Harlem Nights the other night. Great! Movie. I hadn't seen it in like twenty oh, years. Oh, it's so good! And I saw it. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna watch this. That's exactly like what was going on in that movie was with the club separation. Yep, absolutely. Everything. Yeah. You ever seen Harlem Nights? No. Oh, it's good. Isn't that it's, like Eddie Murphy or something? Eddie Richard Murphy, Pryor. Richard Pryor, dude. Um, yeah. yeah. Red Fox. Red Fox is in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's fantastic. So the Jackson Five also performed at clubs and cocktail lounges where strip tease strip tease shows were featured. And local auditoriums and high school dances. So one night they're playing at a strip club. The next one they're playing at a high school dance. Yeah, we know how that goes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we play birthday kids. parties. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. But, I mean, it just, <laughs> what it also shows to me is, and, and that's not a joke, we've played birthday parties and yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's really oh, yeah. stupid. Like little kids' birthday parties? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's whatever. Yeah. It's whatever. Hmm. Yeah. It's fine. You remember that scene in Ghostbusters 2? <laughs> where they're, <No>. like, <laughs> they're that, all that's bankrupt. How, that's what we felt like the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you going to call? He-Man! Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, yeah it was 
horrible. So in uh, <laughs> August of 1967, while touring the East Coast, they won a, a weekly amateur night concert at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, New York. Ooh, that was huge. Oh, yeah. For, like Motown. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A lot of even like white or black, it didn't matter um, in that style of music, whether it was hip hop or uh, soul, R&B, any of that. Like back in the day, the Apollo would make you. I used right. to watch it. I did too. It's showtime. It came on after uh, Saturday Night Live. Yep. Every Saturday yeah. night, you could watch it. They had the Apollo just, dancers yep. with their skirts. And, and what was it? The stuff? Sandman with the hook. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wasn't the Apollo like with like a comedy club at the same time too? Like they would do like comedy acts and stuff up there. Yeah. So they would do anything like entertainment. They had magic and comedy and music and yeah. it was kind of like a almost like a star search for black people i guess, for, I guess for, well i mean there's a lot of white performers on there too but not not much but i mean it was it was more of a stage for yeah. you know underground black artists to it, emerge yeah you know there was a, what was it that movie with chris rock where he like dies and comes back as a, a old white dude or whatever because that's it was like his dream of like playing at the apollo theater Ooh, or something like that? that you know what i'm talking about oh that's a you haven't I seen know, that i don't know what no, that one is yeah quick, i don't know if i've seen amazing that. like they were playing like dmx rough riders and it's really like, you see him like as chris rock just like singing and rapping with it and all of a sudden it pans out and it's just this old white dude rapping because he's in the body of him it's wow, so i gotta it's watch so, that yeah find it's out an what that movie, is. yeah sounds amazing so um quote at first i told myself they were just kids joe said in 1971 goes on to say i soon realized they were very professional there was nothing to wait for. The boys were ready to stage uh, for stage training, and I ran out of reasons to keep them from the school of hard knocks. Okay, so and again, when we were talking about you know playing a, a strip, um, oh, down to earth. I have seen that. Yeah, That's the earth. movie. It's called Down to, to Earth. Check that out. Dude, it's so good. So what it does though, it goes to show that Joe would pretty much take any gig because he just wants them out there. Gotcha. So the strip, you know, having a strip exposure. strip club one night and then the school the next night. It's just any exposure was good exposure. So in 1966. He booked his sons into Gary's Black Nightclubs, like Gary, Indiana, into the Black Nightclubs and some in Chicago. Many of the clubs served alcohol and um, several featured, like we said, strippers. Yay. And, uh, quote, this is a uh, quite a life for a nine-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, think about that. Catherine would remind her husband, but Joe was undaunted. Quote, I used to stand in the wings of this one place in Chicago and watch a lady whose name was Mary Rose, Michael recalled. Quote, this girl would take off her clothes and panties and throw them to the audience. The men would pick them up and sniff them and yell uh, and yell. My brothers and I would be watching all this, taking it in, and my father wouldn't mind. What? <laughs> Sam Moore of Sam and Dave recalled Joe locking Michael, who was maybe 10 years old, in a dressing room while Joe went off on his own adventures. Michael sat alone for hours. He also later recalled having to go on stage, even if he'd been sick in bed that day. So no matter what, you Show get must there, go on. that's it. You get up there. On those tours, the most famous place was the Apollo in New York, like we said, where the Jackson 5 won that amateur night in 1967. All right. Joe had invested everything he had in his son's success, though an accurate recognition or profit was um, would also be his success. That's what he wanted. He wanted to be known as the guy who put them together and put them out right. there. You know what I mean? And he wanted the money from it. Yeah. This, is what, this was his, his chance. So while on the circuit, Joe had known Gladys Knight, who was enjoying a string of small wins uh, with Motown, um, you know, America's preeminent black pop label, Motown. We all know that now. Mm -hmm. With the encouragement of both Knight and Motown R&B star Bobby Taylor of Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's, Joe took his son to Detroit to audition for the label after they opened for Taylor at Chicago's Regal Theater in 1968. Taylor produced some of the early Motown recordings, including a version of Who's Loving You. You know that song? No. Um, oh, I, I don't even remember how it goes right now. It's awesome. It's great. We should put that up in the... Uh, in our uh, playlist. Playlist. Yeah, we should add that to it. Go ahead. So in 1969, Motown moved the Jackson family to Los Angeles, set them up at the home of Diana Ross Ooh. and the label's owner, Barry Gordy, and began grooming them, which sounds horrible to say it that way. Finally, Motown executives decided Miss Ross should introduce the Jackson 5 to the public. So she's the one who actually brought them out. Mm -hmm. And so that began their whole... She, he looked up to her like a like a mother figure. So Diana Ross was in the Supremes, correct? Correct. Yeah. And she was she was like okay. So you know Beyonce, mm -hmm. and she had Destiny's Child, mm -hmm. and you know how like Destiny's Child broke up and the Beyonce went on her own. Yeah. Diana Ross was like the Beyonce of back in the day. Oh. So she was with the Supremes, who were were big in their own right. Oh yeah, they were great. But then they kind of separated, and she kind of like Beyonceed out gotcha. and like yeah. did a solo career and just took off. And That's we'll awesome. talk we'll talk about her and at some point in time in the Supremes yeah. and everybody else because I mean I love that era of music, man. Like the whole Motown, the beginning stages of Motown. Baby like, love. Yeah. Oh yeah. Nee, 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 
me, she, um, me. she was also uh, an actress in quite a few movies too, like the uh, the Wiz uh-huh. with Michael Jackson. We'll, we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that later. Have you ever seen that? No. Oh, it's <laughs> it's it's just it's fun to watch because it's like what is going on? Okay, it's a complete um, remake of Wizard of Oz. Oh, okay. Except it's all black cast. Wow. Yeah, and the, the music is like it's an actual musical. Diana Ross was actually really big in the disco age too. She oh, was yeah. on uh, was it Soul Train? I'm sure Soul Train. I'm sure they played it. Like she, she was, was on, there. on there all the time. Yeah. Like she was big in the disco era. Wow. So yeah. I mean, she was like she was big in Motown back mm-hmm. in the '50s, and then still doing her own solo stuff in the '60s. And then she actually adapted, and she was huge in the disco era in the '70s and then the '80s too. Yeah, she in the '80s. Too. Yeah, oh yeah, she had music in the '80s as well. Yeah. yeah. So wow. M- Michael remembered uh, Gordy Barry Gordy telling them, "Quote: I'm going to make you the biggest thing in the world." Your first record will be a number one. Your second record will be a number one. And so will your third record. Three number one records in a row. So you're, you're like 10 or 11 years old, and you got Barry Gordy, who owns this record label, telling you, like, I'm going to make you guys huge. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. where, do, where do I sign? Yeah, right. Or should I say, where does my dad sign? Yeah. So in 1959, uh, Gordy, actually, and so backtracking a little bit, Gordy, uh, Gordy founded uh, Tamla Records, which soon became known as Motown in Detroit. And I, did, I, I think I knew that it was called Tamla before. I didn't know that. By the time he signed them, uh, the Jackson 5, Motown had long enjoyed its status as the most essential black-owned and operated record label in America, spawning the success of Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, The Temptations, Mary Wells, The Four Tops, and Diana Ross. I mean, the that's Supremes. some of the best music you'll ever hear. Yeah. I mean, I gotta be honest. It's fantastic. Absolutely. Among others, obviously. So unlike Stax and Atlantic, other record labels or whatever, mm. Motown's soul wasn't incredibly bluesy or gritty, nor was it music that spoke explicitly to social matters or the black struggle in the U.S., by its nature, the label exemplified black achievement. All right. So they weren't like trying to make, you know, some prophetic kind of like, you know, um, stance on some sort of political issues or whatever. They just right. wanted to make music and show that they're good. Yeah. And they did. And they did. They absolutely, they absolutely did. did. Yeah. Still, it, its music was made to be consumed by the pop mainstream. It was pop music, of okay. course, which, of course, meant a white audience as much as a black one. The label's early records bore the legend, um, uh, the, the sound of young America is what they basically talked about. Like okay. what Motown was, the sound of young America. At the time, rock music was exceedingly becoming a medium for full length albums. However, Motown maintained its identity as a label that manufactured hit singles, despite groundbreaking albums by Stevie Wonder and my favorite Marvin Gaye. Which is interesting because it, it came back that way. So now they tell you not to do albums to do singles. Right. It's it's all about singles now. Yeah. yeah. It's all it's about. Yeah. So Gordy was looking for a singles-oriented group to deliver hits for young people and give them somebody to identify as their own and admire. Okay. The Jackson 5, Gordy said, would exemplify, quote, bubblegum soul. Soul. Sorry. I said that weird soul. Soul. <laughs> My face was like, mwah. <laughs> So the Jackson 5 made their first television appearance in 1969 in the Miss Black America pageant, performing a cover of It's Your Thing. You know, it's your thing. Ow. Do what you want to do. Yeah. Rolling Stone later <laughs> described the young Michael as, quote, a prodigy with, quote, overwhelming musical gifts who, quote, quickly emerged as the main draw and lead singer. Like you're just this young little dude and you're coming out and you're killing it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just it's awesome. But it's also a lot of pressure for being that age. I mean, think about how many other, you know, and and, and we'll talk about a few of these, but like, let's just say like Justin Bieber. Mm. Yeah. All right. Or or even actors when they start off young. There's not very many of them that as they get older, aren't completely messed up. Well, look at all the Disney kids like Christina Aguilera and Britney and all the stuff that they go through. Right. Which we'll talk about them too. One one of these days. Damn it. I keep smacking my mic. So the Jackson 5's first three singles, I Want You Back, ABC, and The Love You Save, became number one hits as Gordy had promised, and so did a fourth, I'll Be There. You know I Want You Back because it's on the Guardian Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, songs so good. Every one of those songs is amazing. Yeah. I Want You Back. Yeah. Did, did, Love did, did, it. Yeah. ABC's fantastic. I'll Be There is amazing. I Want You Back became the first Jackson 5 song to reach number one in the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. Wow. It stayed there for four weeks. It was originally written... By the way, for Gladys Knight and the Pips, and for Diana Ross. Ah, interesting. Think about how a different song that, that would have is, been. Yeah, you know what I mean, do you know what uh, song or what what group actually sampled and looped ABC and became a huge, huge hit in the nineties? Mm, if you were to tell me, I would recognize it. I don't know that. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Oh, don't do it to my head. Do you know? If you only had one chance. Uh, one answer uh, to answer correctly. Early 90s. Early 90s. Would you answer yep, correctly? I know exactly who it a is. group of three people. Yep, Led Zeppelin. No. Damn. 
No, it was not Led Zeppelin. <laughs> you suck. It's a little group called Naughty by Nature. And they, oh, did, they did a song yeah. called OPP. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that loop of that music yeah. is from ABC. And that's still played when you go to, like, everyone knows OPP, that yeah. song. Well, it's so funny because a lot of, like, rock and, like, metal songs nowadays are sampling OPP, which was sampled from ABC. That's, uh, well, that's, think that's about it goes, this man. way. It's crazy. ABC, when it came out, when we're talking about this, this time era, it was huge. It won awards. Mm -hmm. it, it probably went double platinum or diamond. I'm sure we'll get to that. But, yeah. okay, on its own. Then you have Naughty by Nature come in. They loop it. Mm -hmm. And OPP was huge. 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 So you're doubling with your royalties. I mean, they had to make so much bank off that. Yeah. Well, it, the, the, the reason, well, I shouldn't say the reason, but a lot of times what happens is, is that you sample something, especially for like hip hop and stuff, mm -hmm. because it's, it's, you can identify it immediately. Right. And even if you don't know where you heard the song before, you know you've heard the song before. Yeah. You know, so it's just, it's just the same thing with melody lines. Like when you sing melody lines and stuff like that, like you want to, a lot of people will sing something that sounds familiar, but you don't want to you don't want to completely take it. You right. know what I mean? So you just add something. Sampling is a little bit different though because you can actually use it. And they even know? have Michael in OPP where he breaks in that course. He's like, "Come on, come on, come on! Let me show you what it's all about." Yeah, yeah, yeah. OPP. Yeah. How can I explain it? Oh, I take boy. a frame of frame. Be, oh, keep going, buddy. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm not as good as Tretch, man. He, <laughs> He's awesome. Oh wow. God, I love yeah, Naughty that, by Nature. That dude could spit some lyrics, man. That'd be a fun one to do too. That would like, be cool. Yeah, one of these days. Yoke the Joker. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> One of my favorite songs by them, I'm not even joking, is off their first album. It's called uh, Ghetto Bastard. Ghetto Bastard, yeah. One of my all-time favorite Just songs. Just another ghetto bastard. Yeah. <laughs> Put them with the rest of the born losers. So the group was established as the breakout sensation of 1970. Fred Rice, who uh, would create ja a, uh, Jackson 5 merchandise for Motown, said, quote, I call them the Black Beatles. It's unbelievable. And he was right. It's pretty accurate. Yeah. The Jackson 5 defined the transition from 1960s soul to 1970s pop as much as Sly and the Family Stone. When many Americans were uneasy about minority aspirations to power, the Jackson 5 displayed an agreeable ideal of black pride, reflecting kinship and aspiration rather than opposition. They were, they were the, how do you, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but it was like, it was seeing the, the friendly black folk for, for yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. You're seeing them, they're playing, like they look very wholesome, they're, they're dancing, they're singing, they look, they look innocent they had amazing afros and non-threatening yeah. you know amazing I mean? yeah, afro. i'm talking afros. like yeah <laughs> like a yeah. foot like in diameter oh, my yeah Lord. and they all had them like all of them yeah but you know what i mean They're though it was like awesome. very it was non-threatening where like you've got this whole racial divide going on and a lot of people are like oh i don't like black people man because i'm a big stupid hillbilly yeah you know and then all of a sudden <laughs> they're like martha what are you watching Oh, look at these little fellas on here. Well, there was oh, the that's thing. not bad. You know what I mean? That's Their music, happens. like you said, everybody could get down with it. I mean, yeah. yeah, old lady, old white ladies were getting down with it. You know, young kids were getting down with it. Yeah. All over the world. It was, and again, they were huge, and we'll keep talking about it, but they were huge. So moreover, they represented a realization that the civil rights movement made possible, which couldn't have happened even five or six years earlier. Okay, so civil rights was a big thing at that time, too. And then they come out, and that's when everyone's kind of going... Maybe we shouldn't be judging someone by their color. You know what I mean? Right. Like, at least some some people. I'll say some. I don't know about all because it's still yes. out there somewhere. So not to mention the Jackson 5 earned the respect of the critics. Reviewing I Want You Back in Rolling Stone, John Landau wrote, quote, the arrangement, energy, and simple spacing of the rhythm all contribute to the record's spellbinding impact. It's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Yes, we all, uh, what's it? Hold on. It says, yes, we all, <laughs> I don't know why it says it's in his thing. Anyway, they were fantastic. Here's right? a question. And I don't know if you found this in the research or not. Yeah. Did Barry Gordy write the riffs and the music arrangements and they just performed it or did they help make the music arrangements? It was a collective. Uh, I know Joe was in a lot of it, but then you'll find out soon that Michael, even at a young age, started writing and okay. contributing. So it was like a, a collective thing. I didn't know yeah. if like that Barry Gordy guy, if he's like, okay, here's what I got. A flat, B flat. Well, you, like, uh, so that, what was it? Uh, I Want You Back? Yeah. That was written by Gordy. Okay. Yeah. And he got credit for that too, I'm assuming. Oh, absolutely. Like he was, yeah. 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 100%. Money, money, money. A lot of people don't realize that. I mean, like the average person that's not really into music yeah. doesn't realize all the hands involved in like a popular song. They think like, oh, Taylor Swift, you know, she wrote this song. No. Nope. No, the truth look is, up, is look like up credits. That's a guy it. in Montana that lives in a cabin wrote the song and sold it to Taylor Swift and she put her spin on it basically. Or then it goes through rewrites and you know, you've got one guy that comes in and goes, well, wait, what if you did this in here? And then another person goes, well, what if you did this in here? And then someone yeah. goes, well, wait a minute, I have an idea for this. And they add a little keyboard part in there. If you look at writing credits, mm -hmm. 
um, on on most pop songs nowadays, they're as long as my arm. Know, you know yeah. what I mean? And most people don't realize that. Like I, I've told that to people at like parties and stuff. And yeah. like, no way. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. I'm like, yeah, that person did not write them. They're like, what? Yeah, like, they're they're dumbfounded by yeah, it. Absolutely. And it to well, we talked about uh, Buddy Holly. Yeah. You know, finding someone that can literally write all their own own songs without any assistance. Yeah. Wait till we get to Prince. Is it? Oh, I can't <laughs> wait. That's gonna be like a five part. He's episode. one of the best writers of all <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah. So, of course, the, the group was fantastic, right? Jackson 5 out there killing it. However, there was no question about who the Jackson 5's true star was and who they depended on. Michael. Joe. Michael Jackson. Oh, no, not Joe. Joe. <laughs> you suck. Hey, Logan, go get a switch. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> so Michael's voice also worked um, beyond conventional no, uh, no, uh, notions of male uh, soul vocals, okay? It surpassed genders because, remember, he's younger. He's got that higher-pitched voice. And oh, can, yeah. You know what I mean? It's right. soulful, but it's still... Dude, that it, I'll be there, that yeah. note in the in the bridge. Oh yeah, it's so. It, I mean, I can't even do it. It's I so high. Not even if I tried, I couldn't hit most of his notes. Just if look I tried. over your shoulder, honey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can't even do it. So good. So, cultural critic and musician um, Jason King wrote, "Quote: It's not an exaggeration to say that he was the most advanced popular singer of his age in the history of recorded music. His untrained tenor was uncanny." By all rights, he shouldn't have had as much vocal authority as he did at such a young age. In other words, he was leaps and bounds people two times, three times his age. And to be honest, I don't think anyone's ever come close. No. And I think you could at that, credit at that age. Right. You, know? you right. probably credit that, though, for him being isolated his whole childhood. Well, yeah. Well, we have a good friend who had a similar kind, not like an abusive, but he lost his father in an early age. And to cope with it, he literally sat in his room and played guitar over and over for, I mean, years. We're not going to bring up his name because it pisses me off that he hasn't never went out there and he should have been one of the biggest right. guitarists ever. But he, at an early age, I worked with, he was in my first band when we were 14 years old. Okay. Okay, whatever. And, Hi, Steve. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and like my parents would come out and be like, because they were just so blown away by him, is here's this little 13 year old kid with his guitar and they'd be like, play Freebird. And I'm talking note for note, just beep, 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 nee, 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 nee. like he's he just was, a beast yeah. he's a be absolute beast so, oh by the way um go out there and check out critic city they're out there that's his band that's his yeah. band it's steve uh, steve Sembeck, uh critic city they're they're a really good band. he's hands down the best guitarist in ohio yeah for sure yeah for sure i mean there's a lot of good ones and i'm not trying to downplay anybody else that we know but steve is like a diamond in he's, the rough he's fantastic he, really and he is. did that so like he lost his father at a really early age and to cope with it he just sat in his room and he played guitar over and over and over and over and for years and he just became this like genius at it it's he became crazy. a icon yeah, <laughs> yeah. maybe of, one day yeah. we can do an, a Dude, show on steve don steve maybe have him come in yeah he would cool. I'd, I'd like to talk to him and make him play here. yeah that'd be fun yeah yeah so in may 1971 the jackson family moved into a large house on a two-acre estate in encino california Michael turned from a child performer into a heart-throbbing teen idol during this period. Oh, yeah. He was growing up, and all the young little teeny bopper girls were like, Michael! Ah! Hormones kicking in. Tiger beat up on their walls and yeah. stuff. Yeah. I don't know if Tiger beat was... I'm Tiger sure it was, beat. yeah. <laughs> Michael and his brothers seemed like they were everywhere for at least the first few years and enjoyed the praise of the masses. But soon they experienced some problematic limitations. The music they were making wasn't really of invention. They didn't write or produce it. And after Michael was relegated to recording throwback tunes like Rock and Robin in 1972, he worried that the Jackson 5 would become an oldies act before he left adolescence. So he was worried about this, right? He wanted to he wanted to kind of do his own thing. Yeah. Well, you look at it as they struck why the iron was hot. And then obviously we all know in the music world things are trendy and, and cyclical, I guess. It, it all goes in a, a circle. And they were losing that whole Motown pop momentum at that time. Everything like disco was coming in at that point. Right. And pop was converting more to like, I don't know. How would you explain it? Pop converted to like more dance, I guess, at that point in the 70s. Well, it went to disco. Right. But yeah. I mean, it was more like. Yeah, it was all about the beat. It was all about dancing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they were losing that whole, what would you call it? Uh, Bubblegum. The bubblegum soul. They were losing that. Yeah, gotcha. you know, it wasn't popular anymore. Right. That's because trends. Trends always change. That's why you have to adapt, or you fall to the waste. You know what I mean? And then you put out something like Garage Days or Pushing P. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now Michael released four solo studio albums with Motown. Gotta be there in 1972. Ben from 1972. Music and Me in 1973, and Forever Michael in 1974. Uh, ben is uh, as really have you ever heard ben before mm. we definitely got to add that to our playlist um it is such a sad song 
You know what I mean? It I've is. Never heard it. Oh yeah, if you listen to it, you'll you'll hear what I'm talking about. I wish I could play it on here, but I can't. Uh, I don't want Michael's attorneys coming after us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they were frustrated by Motown's uh, refusal to give creative input, right? So he was doing this while the Jackson Five were still together. Mm-hmm. So while they were still doing their thing. He broke off and just not broke off, but he went and did the solo project as well. Right. Solo records. He had the vision right. of the future, and the others didn't. They wanted to stay comfy. Right. You know, with the money they were getting and doing what they were doing. So. Yeah. So this is when uh, they actually started producing themselves and creating their own sound. When given creative leeway, Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye showed the ability to grow and change and sell records. And with 1974's Dance Machine, great song. That'll be in uh, the, the, uh, the playlist as well. The Jacksons proved they could thrive when they tackled a funk groove and brought the robot dance into popularity. You know, dancing, dancing, dancing. She's a dancing machine. And that's when their videos were pretty epic. Yeah. If you ever look at the bell bottoms, videos, those yeah. bell bottoms and all these lasers going everywhere. It was their seventies. So, so much stuff going on that didn't make made no sense yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> so fun. So um, however, um, Motown wouldn't consider this stuff. They not only refused to grant our request, Michael said in, in his book, they told us it was taboo to even mention that we wanted to do our own music. Remember, you had people writing the stuff for you all yep. the time. Michael understood this. Motown would not let the Jackson 5 grow, but unfortunately, they also wouldn't let him grow as an artist. So Michael waited, studying the producers he and his brothers worked with. Uh, Quote, I was like a hawk praying in the night, he said. I'd watch everything. They didn't get away with nothing without me seeing it. I really wanted to get into it because he wanted to make his own music. So he's watching the producers and he's watching engineers. He's watching everything in that studio take place. And later on in life, when you if you go and watch any of the documentaries and stuff, the dude was a genius. Oh yeah, an absolute. Well, genius. we talk about all the time in that this is it, where he stops the yeah. musicians, and he's like, "No, I want the bass to be like right," and the guy's like, "Okay," and then he plays it, and yeah. it's like it works. Yeah, he's amazing. <laughs> like, so in 1975, the Jackson Five left Motown, and Joe Jackson negotiated a new deal for his sons with Epic Records for a 500 percent royalty rate increase, and renamed ooh. themselves the Jacksons. 500 percent. Yeah. Wow. With younger brother Randy joining the band around this time. The contract also stipulated so- solo albums for the Jacksons through the arrangement or though the arrangement did not include Jermaine, who married uh, Barry Gordy's daughter, Hazel, mm-hmm. huh. and stayed with Motown, creating a rift with the family that lasted for several years, which I didn't know that Jermaine was kind of like often stayed with them. Yeah. I, I remember that from the documentary. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't remember that part. They're like swimming in a pool when they met and she's like, hi, my name's Hazel. He's like, Hi, I'm Jermaine. And then next thing you know, like the, the next day they're married. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So Motown tried to block the deal and stop the brothers from using the Jackson 5 name. Instead, Epic initially placed them with Philadelphia producers Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. Still, it wouldn't be until 1978's Destiny that the Jacksons, with Michael as their primary songwriter, finally took control over their music and rebranded their sound with the dance-tastic hits Blame It On The Boogie and Shake Your Body Down To The Ground while bringing a newly found emotional embellishment in songs like Push Me Away and Bless This Soul. They were crushing it. They were absolutely crushing it. Destiny, however, was just the start. After that, Michael was ready to make significant changes to establish his dominance as a solo artist. In 1977, Michael moved to New York City to star as the uh, Scarecrow in The Wiz, what we were talking about earlier. It co-starred Diana Ross, Nipsey Russell, and Ted Ross. The movie was a box office failure, but has gained significant traction as a cult classic. And again, it's it's campy, it's weird, it's 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 just something cool to watch. You know who would uh, who would probably really like to watch it is Ava. Yeah, yeah, I think she would really enjoy that. That's uh my granddaughter. <laughs> she would like that. It's a very musical, like, yeah. uh, what would you call it? Ad- adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, that's what it is. Right, one hundred percent. Yeah, I just remember the Reese cup on Michael's nose. Yeah. <laughs> So, they literally took like a, a Reese cup, you know, like the big ones, yeah, and like glued it to his nose, and that's what his nose was. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's weird. So, um, <laughs> the Wiz was actually scored uh, and arranged by a guy um, that I don't know if you're familiar with or not, uh, Quincy Jones. Oh, oh, sir, Quincy Jones. Yes, sir. <laughs> who later produced three of Michael's solo albums in New York? Jackson often hung out at the Studio Fifty Four nightclub where he discovered early hip hop. This influenced his beatboxing on future tracks such as Working Day and Night, which I didn't know that he did beatboxing. I had no idea. Well, I mean, he always was in his music. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah. It's kind yeah. of like a, a beatboxing, I guess. Yeah. 
1978, Jackson uh, Michael actually broke his nose during a dance routine. Oh, a wow. rhinoplasty led to breathing difficulties that later affected his career. So that this is when it started. It was 1978. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it started. So everyone always made fun how he always had these nose surgeries. Yeah. Well, he messed his nose up pretty bad. What Young, the hell dance move did he do to break his nose? It might have been the worm or something. I don't the know. The worm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Doing the lean, yeah, lean too far. I, yeah. I don't know what he did. The sprinkler. It, he obviously <laughs> he smacked himself in the face. <laughs> what is it? The, the Carlton. Yeah, the, the Carlton, hand yeah. coming up. Yeah, he fisted, <laughs> smacked himself in the, right face. In the face. Yeah. During this time, he fired his father as his manager and found himself a new father figure. You know that guy, Quincy Jones. Jones was a respected jazz, jazz musician, band leader, composer, and arranger who had worked with Clifford Brown, Frank Sinatra, Leslie Gore, Count Basie, Aretha Franklin, and Paul Simon. And Mike Myers. And, what? And yeah, he did. Awesome Powers. He did. He did the scores. Oh, for yeah, awesome he did. yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Quincy Jones. Kisses I actually forgot all about that. Yeah, you're right. He, he did do that. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's the only reason why I know him. That's about it. That's awesome. Well, you know who his daughter is, right? No. Rashida. Rashida Jones. She's in I Love You Man. She's the wife of Paul Rudd in I Love You Man. She was in the, Oh She's oh. in the off uh, the office yeah, and Parks and Rec. Parks and Rec. No yeah. kidding. Yeah, that's, that's his that's his daughter. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Hmm. And his her mom, who Quincy married, was the girl from the mod squad, uh Peggy what the hell's her name? I know I can't remember her name right now. I know you're a really about. beautiful girl from yeah. the mod squad. That's her mom and Quincy's wife. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Making rich babies. See? Yeah. yeah. So Michael liked Quincy's ear for mixing complex hard beats with soft overlayers. Quote, it was the first time that I fully wrote and produced my songs, Jackson later said. And I was looking for somebody who would give me that freedom, plus somebody who's unlimited musically. Specifically, Michael said his solo album had to sound different than the Jacksons. He wanted a cleaner and funkier sound because he knew that's what was coming up. Mm -hmm. You know, these two getting together was history in the making. Quincy brought an ethereal buoyancy to Michael's fifth solo album, Off the Wall, um, and his uh, soft erotic little fever on songs like uh, Rock With You and Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. And in a fantastic moment like She's Out of My Life where Quincy literally sat there with him, okay? And uh, like the crying you hear in that song is Michael crying in the studio. Oh, wow. So it was, it, he had him just, it's uh, for She's Out of My Life. Um, it says uh, the tears were real. Jackson, uh, Michael would break down in tears, and at the end of uh, each studio take, quote, we recorded about, I don't know, eight to 11 takes, and every one at the end, he just cried, producer Quincy Jones said. It's crazy. Well, we talked about that before, how producers yeah. bring that out on you, yep. you know? Uh, quote, I said, hey, that's supposed to be, leave it on there. The resulting album was a massive hit, selling more than five million copies in the U.S. alone by 1985 and producing four top 10 singles. It reached number three in the Billboard 200 and sold more than 20 million copies worldwide. Don't Stop Till You Get Enough was solely written by Michael. Wow. He decided to write the song after constantly humming the melody at home. So he, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he's just at home and he's just like yeah. hearing that -na 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 in his head. And he goes in the studio and he's like, can you hit record? You know? <laughs> and then boom. <laughs> I'm sorry. We, we keep making the Michael voice. Yeah, I'm sorry. Really <laughs> yeah. So Michael won three American Music Awards for his solo work in 1980. Favorite solo, uh, favorite soul R&B album, favorite soul R&B male artist, and favorite soul R&B single for Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. He also won a Grammy Award for Best Male R&B Vocal Performance for Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. So that was all the ammo he needed to be like, yep, I'm going solo. Yeah, like yeah. what else It'll do you work. need? It'll yeah. work. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that, that's, that's all you need. However, he thought he should have taken away more. He actually wanted, he thought he was supposed to win more rec or, uh, awards for this. Yeah, oh. he was kind of bummed. The Doobie Brothers, What a Fool Believes, won Record of the Year in Billy Joel's 52nd Street album. Uh, uh, yeah, 52nd Street won Album of the Year. That was a huge album for Billy Joel, too. Yep. I mean, that's a hard one to top right there. <clears throat> Absolutely. And Michael was stunned and kind of bitter. Huh. Yeah. You know, uh, you know what, what a Fool Believes by the Doobie Brothers? You know the mm, song? That sounds familiar. What a Fool Believes. You know that Michael song, right? McDonald. Yeah. I yeah, can't that hit sounds, that note. No, right now. Yeah, My voice is fried familiar. today. So anyway, he go goes on to say, my family thought I was going crazy because I was weeping so much about it, he later said. I felt ignored and it hurt. I said to myself, wait until next time. They won't be able to ignore the next album. That experience lit a fire in my soul. So, got a huge album out. Right. Wasn't enough. So he goes, I'm going to make the next one bigger. That's pretty awesome. I didn't know that. And yeah. he did. <laughs> I mean, he literally changed the world. Michael told Quincy and others that his next album wouldn't simply be more immense than Off the Wall. It would be the biggest album ever. And uh, he was not lying. 
1981, Michael was the American Music Awards winner for Favorite Soul R&B Album and Favorite Soul R&B Male Artist. And he secured, by the way, he secured the, in 1980 the highest royalty rate in the music industry at 37% of wholesale album profits. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> in other words, you're making, on every dollar, mm-hmm. you're making 37 cents. If each album costs $10. You can't even get that nowadays. No. Absolutely not. That's unheard of. Wow. So let's explain a little bit about royalties here, okay? Talking about the highest royalty thing. So um, music royalties are compensation payments received by songwriters, composers, recording artists, and other respective uh, representatives in exchange for the licensed uh, use of their music. Makes sense. Okay, so every time, you know, if we, like right now, if we were to play any of their music, we would have to pay them royalties or have a license that pays them royalties. So we do with the cover songs you guys hear at the end of the show. Yes. Yeah. By the way, we do that. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Michael recorded with Freddie Mercury, the star-studded frontman of future icons. Who's that? Led Zeppelin. I'm just kidding. It's Queen. <sighs> there it is. All right. <laughs> Everything is Led Zeppelin. Everything is Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> From 1981 to 1983. That would be a great shirt. Wouldn't it? Yeah, everything is Led Zeppelin. <laughs> I, I think you should do one up. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good yeah, shirt. Yeah. Maybe that'll be our first shirt. I like it. Um, so in 1981 to 1983, recording demos of State of Shock, Victory, and There Must Be More to Life Than This with Freddie. The recordings were supposed to be uh, for an album of duets, but according to Queen's manager, Jim Beach, the relationship went to crap when Jackson bought a llama into, or brought a llama into the recording studio. <laughs> Wait, what? Yes, a llama. <laughs> yeah, he, he did that. Yeah. So, uh, but you know yeah. what? I heard Freddie Mercury was hard to get along with. Well, it says also, too, that he, uh, Michael was upset about um, Freddie's drug use, too. Well, you know about Under Pressure, right? I'm sure we'll oh, yeah. go over that. Well, I'll leave it for the episode, but let's just say in Under Pressure, that was like they couldn't record together. They had to do their parts separately Who while did, they uh, weren't Bowie and, together. And, Freddie? and then they made amends after the song took off and won awards. But originally, they couldn't get along enough to be in the same room, so they had to do their parts separately at separate times. You know what? That sounds like a good idea for a bonus. We're going to talk about feuds. I think oh, that'll be the bonus episode. Yeah, what do you think? Really cool. yeah. We'll talk about musical feuds because um, there's a lot of them, uh, especially when you talk about bands like Aerosmith, yeah. where they've hated each other. Really? For the, basically since Still they started. Do. Yeah. Still do. Like the, the guys in that band? Correct. Steve Perry and uh, what's his name? Steven Tyler. Wasn't the same thing with like Guns N' Roses too? Didn't like everyone hate Axl Rose? Well, yeah. Okay. But who doesn't? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. Kidding. So luckily, those songs were actually released in 2014. Okay. The ones with him and Freddie. So Michael recorded State of Shock with Mick Jagger for the Jacksons album Victory, the 15th studio album by the Jacksons. The oh, 15th no. Mick studio Jagger album. Got with him. Yeah. But think about that 15th studio album by 1984. Yeah, it's crazy. The album was the only album to include um, all six Jackson brothers together as an official group. Also, it was the band's last album to be entirely recorded with Michael as lead singer. In 1982, Michael contributed Someone in the Dark to the audiobook for the film E.T., the extraterrestrial. Hmm. Yeah. You know? So you know what? I tell you what. Why don't we call it for this one? This is episode or the the first part of this um episode for michael jackson i say we leave it there because we're going to start talking about thriller and things will really get crazy and take off and it's an entirely if you don't know about michael's backstory and even if you do you really don't i took a deep dive and it's going to be awesome okay so stick around for next week as we talk about part two of michael jackson because i mean it's michael he he has to have two parts right of course all right this week all right we're talking about music news you guys are gonna have to bear with me i'm in the middle of moving my house like physically you're picking it up yeah like i have wireless mic and headphones on right now oh you're there right now i've been in the truck the whole time we've been doing this episode that's awesome i'm just kidding watch out for that deer (laughs) so all my stuff is packed up but um so the biggest thing that i have noticed that have, has happened in music news is uh we lost naomi judd yeah that's who, super sad man i don't know if you want to explain you probably know more about naomi judd than i do i well, mean i know she was a big western star for many many years well, she was um one part of the judds which was her daughter not ashley what's winona 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 judd and her and they were and huge yeah you know who ashley judd is right no um, famous actress, and if you saw her face, I guarantee you would know who she Probably is. Probably Morgan Freeman yeah. movies, and yeah, okay. she she was just awesome actress. But that was um, one of the other daughters, and yeah, they were they were an absolutely huge um, 
country western act back in the day so she passed away um about a week week ago yeah and no one really knew they didn't release what happened well now we're finding out ashley's done interviews and it was actually a suicide she it was a gunshot wound. yeah that's so sad that is sad. which is crazy because naomi judd had to be what in her 80s probably at this point? i would say so i mean you made it that far uh, then again you know depression and yeah Go stuff like that terms. really has no bounds i guess yeah i mean it's it sucks too i mean and you said that uh we were talking before the show that there's not really any uh do they have a reasoning behind why she took her own life not yet not yet really well it's the family's not really releasing any information on it um so we lost her um, yeah that's so sad really is and then really the only other thing i found that i had to kind of laugh at and i love them okay so i love you too okay i've always loved you too oh, i love you too buddy <laughs> The, the bear the blessing <laughs> jesus christ okay but i've always loved their music but they are kind of over the top you know they had the whole thing where apple like forced their albums on their phone still on my phone i can't get it off they're like a, a whole thing so anyways the edge and bono went over to kiev in ukraine and yeah. just started jamming out and playing like their hits just the two of them in a subway nice in what the middle of a yeah. war that's, that's amazing interesting and the funny part about yeah, it right. is <laughs> kind of yeah well they were trying to like cheer people up yeah but the funny part is like if you watch the footage of it like everybody's just staying in the subway with like a stone face mm-hmm. and but i was like yeah come on like you know they're probably like, like hey assholes yeah do you see what's happening around you right now basically yes <laughs> is what the vibe you get from the people watching you them. need to grab kalishnikov we have war to win so I don't know. I don't know if it's a thing like U2 is just kind of like they think they're better than everything. Yeah, I kind of see that. I mean, they're better than everything. Again, else. I love U2's music. I don't know about like them as people. I don't like their last but album. But their music is is awesome. I used to love them. Joshua Tree, man, that was some good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, they were great. Right. That is kind of odd to go it over is, right? and do that. It almost like, feels like, I mean, uh, yeah, grab a gun. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's no fighting war. Like, right? No one told them to do that. They just, Bono's like, we're going to do this. And Edge is like, I guess. Well, there's like, <laughs> yeah. and they went and did it. He's Hundreds like, of world leaders all just kind of showed up one day, too. And we're just like, hey, how's it going? Yeah. to see what you guys are doing over here. You know? Yeah. Like, so that's your music news, right? Can we get a salute for uh, yeah, Naomi Yeah, for Jai? sure. To our recently passed on icon and outlaw, we salute you. Rest in peace. Yeah, for sure. That stinks, man. Especially going that way, you know. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it is what it is. I mean, look at Robin. What Robin Williams? He he took his own life because of of his disease that he had, and it was just he was not who he was. Uh, who he we grew to be. Well, look at Chester and Chris Cornell. Which, yeah. by the way, yeah, there's a lot of stuff coming out about that. Which I know you know, Logan. I haven't heard anything new about that. I think we should bring that up on one of their. Yeah, well, we have Lincoln Park coming up here we in a couple weeks, Lincoln or maybe Park. a bonus mm-hmm. where we that's, talk about the whole thing because that's it's more of a bonus. there's some really, really crazy stuff like yeah. conspiracies yeah. and like the conspiracies are the biggest thing because like I did a deep dive on that when I was doing the research for Lincoln Park. There's so much about yeah. all that, and most of it's like just. But it's very coincidental. Like if you watch like the rabbit hole videos where mm-hmm. like they show the proof of the stuff, it's like wait, what? Sounds like a uh, bonus episode. That's, to me. Yeah, definitely absolutely. A bonus episode. So listen, that was part one of Michael Jackson. Make sure to stick around next week for part two, and it's going to get the, the roller coaster gets really wavy and crazy and all over the place. Don't man. stop till you get enough. That's right. <laughs> So make sure to follow, like, and subscribe to all of our social media channels. Just search for Icons and Outlaws wherever you listen to your favorite podcast and connect with your favorite people. Are we going to play our song at the end of this episode or next episode? Are we going to make them wait? Hey, look, yeah, let's make them wait until next all week. Right. Yeah, we'll play our, our version. But, I mean, you can also go and listen to it on um, our Spotify playlist or anywhere that you find your favorite music So they there. can listen early, you're saying? Yeah. Did you guys hear that? You don't have to wait. Get on over there and like, subscribe, and do all that stuff and tell your friends, right? Hey, put it on your playlist, too, by the way. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Please. Yeah. So we produce another amazing podcast called The Midnight Train, which, by the way, just celebrated its third birthday today. I can't believe it's Three been years. that long. Three years. That's crazy. Like, that's... Yeah. When you, when I was listening to the last episode when you mentioned it, and I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. I had to, like, in my head, go back and be like, 
I, I guess so. I guess yeah, it's, it's been three years today, as a matter of fact. So happy birthday to the Midnight Train. Oh. And if you're into unsolved true crime, the paranormal, or anything mysterious and can laugh at the craziness of all of it, um, we think you'll actually like it. Just go up on wherever you listen to podcasts, all right? Got to bring some up real quick. Yeah. I just bought another like $50 worth of Dr. Squatch. Did you really? Uh, well, I'm sitting on the couch. So I bought the, the Batman kit, this one, mm-hmm. which by the way, wife loves it. It's amazing. Like it smells good. So I bought this and I bought two because they hit you ever check out and they, they're like, well, here, you can get this for like a discount. So they suckered me into two of the pine tars. Oh, yeah. So I got the Batman and the two pine tars. Pine tars. Good. Then I got an email. I'm sitting on the couch and I look and they brought this galaxy set pack. I know I need to get that. And I guess like everybody said it's like the best they've ever had. So I got to get it. I bought it. Did I you? bought the galaxy set and then I bought an extra one of the ones that's in the galaxy set. And then I'm, I'm checking out and I got the things. So I'm like. Well, I'll try deodorant. So I got deodorant and then I got uh, the <laughs> did holder. You, did you use our code? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. I, and I and I got the holder, too. Yeah. So I dropped like $58 again on Dr. Squatch. That's awesome. <laughs> hey, listen, by I'm the gonna way. I'm going to be set. I'm going to be set for months with soap. Right. You guys can get over there over to uh, just go to, well, right now, I guess go to accidentaldads.com yeah. and you can click on the, what's on the Midnight Train one right now because I got to get the sponsors up for um because we'll use the same ones, but you can go there and go to sponsors for the Midnight Train Podcast.com and you can get your own discount for some Dr. Squash. And it's legit. A lot of our listeners from the Midnight Train actually started getting it and they're even chiming in on Facebook oh, yeah. saying, like, oh, yeah, you guys are right. Like, it is, it is no joke. It's legit. It's awesome stuff. Yeah. So lastly, please consider supporting both shows by signing up to be a Patreon producer over at patreon.com forward slash accidental dads. We're for as little as five bucks a month. You'll get bonus episodes, exclusive content, and discount codes on merches for both shows. So thank you so much for listening to our episode on Michael Jackson. And in the immortal words of Michael, in a world filled with hate, we must still dare to hope. In a world filled with anger, we must still dare to comfort. In a world filled with despair, we must still dare to dream. And in a world filled with distrust, we must still dare to believe.
listener we hope you enjoyed our song and remember you can listen to it anytime you want to on spotify apple or anywhere else you listen to your favorite music just look up icons and outlaws thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon